Good morning. We have visitors. Thank you for being here. I want you to know that uh, what we're doing in this part of our worship is uh, something we do each second Sunday morning at this time. It is our Q&A morning. And uh, what that means for you is, well, not really anything for you, except that uh, you're not going to have to do anything differently, although I am. Uh, our Q&A is uh, something we do each month where questions that I've gathered from uh, usually our members, sometimes our visitors that have been uh, submitted to me. I'm going to take some time and try to answer those questions. Uh, things that have to do with the Bible or how the Bible interfaces with something that uh, happens in our lives and uh, questions that arise from that. The questions that we're going to cover this morning are questions that, that come from Bible study and questions that as, as we've studied together, we, we suddenly wonder, well, what is happening here and what happened here? And uh, so we're going to look at a little bit at the life of Samson uh, in the first question this morning. But uh, just so you know, it's not something where I'm, I'm looking for your participation or more questions, at least not in this period. Uh, if I do raise more questions, I'm happy to answer them. Just please submit them to me in some kind of written form or make sure I record that. Uh, but thank you so much for being here. Looking forward to the study this morning. The first question we have is, uh, did Samson commit suicide? Uh, Judges 16 and verse 23, I want to read here just to introduce this topic, and then we'll back up a little. So, Judges 16, 23, we're going to read down to 31. It says, Now the lords of the Philistines gathered to offer a great sacrifice to Dagon, their god, and to rejoice. And they said, Our god has given Samson, our enemy, into our hand. And when the people saw him, they praised their god. For they said, Our god has given our enemy into our hand, the ravager of our country who has killed many of us. And when their hearts were merry, they said, Call Samson that he may entertain us. So they called Samson out of the prison, and he entertained them. They made him stand between the pillars. And Samson said to the young man who held him by the hand, Let me feel the pillars on which the house rests, that I may lean against them. Now the house was full of men and women. All the lords of the Philistines were there, and on the roof there were about 3,000 men and women who looked on while Samson entertained. Then Samson called to the Lord and said, O Lord God, please remember me and please strengthen me only this once, O God, that I may be avenged on the Philistines for my two eyes. And Samson grasped the two middle pillars on which the house rested, and he leaned his weight against them, his right hand on the one and his left hand on the other. And Samson said, Let me die with the Philistines. Then he bowed with all his strength, and the house fell upon the lords and upon all the people who were in it. So the dead whom he killed at his death were more than those whom he had killed during his life. Then his brothers and all his family came down and took him and brought him up and buried him between Zorah and Eshtaol and the tomb of Manoah, his father. He had judged Israel 20 years. All right, so the context of this story is era of the judges. That is the time when Israel is living in the land, but before they get kings. And the way this time period plays out is, is a typical cycle where the people will abandon God and then God will allow them to be oppressed or overrun by another nation or another little ethnic group in their area. And... So things get really bad for a while, and then the people decide to repent. They cry out to God for help, and God sends a deliverer or a judge. It's usually someone who delivers and then judges. Uh, we call them judges. We might call them something more like, uh, kind of like a hero, you know, a hero who's going to come and rally the people and, and lead the armies and all of that. And that, that plays out several different times. And in this time, the Philistines have subjugated Israel, and so God sends uh, Samson as a deliverer and a judge. And the way that that's often put in the text about Samson is that the spirit of Jehovah is on him. That's what it keeps saying. The spirit of Jehovah is on him. So one of the things that's really difficult 
for modern readers of the book of Judges generally, but especially of Samson's story. When we're, we're Christians, and so we have a tendency to look at Samson and try to judge him by Christian ethics or judge him and say, how could the spirit of Jehovah be on a guy who is like Samson? Because Samson does some really bad things. In fact, I, I would say that in terms of personal character, Samson doesn't show us much good. Uh, and he shows us a lot of bad, and yet Samson does a lot of good in terms of advancing the cause of God. So it makes us uh, a little uneasy. In fact, I have to say I have some, uh, some scars about Samson because when I first started preaching, uh, one of the first Bible classes I ever taught was the book of Judges. And that's a tough one to start off with, just so you know. If you ever, ever have a young preacher, and you know, let, let him start with you know, something in the New Testament besides Revelation. And uh, I, I remember there were, there were some Christians in that group that uh, they, they argued with me quite a bit, particularly about Samson, uh, because uh, there was one lady in particular who said we should never criticize someone God commends. And God had commended Samson. And I, to this day, I have trouble understanding the logic of that because, you know, God can commend someone without them being perfect. But I, I have to say, I understand and relate to the idea that it's difficult to judge what's going on with Samson. I, I want to show you something. Go, go back with me a few pages to Judges 14. Judges 14. I think we have a clue here as to how we are intended to read the story. In Judges 14, I just want to read these first four verses, and you'll kind of get a feel. I think this is the pattern that plays out in Samson's life. It says, Judges 14, 1, Samson went down to Timnah, and at Timnah he saw one of the daughters of the Philistines. Then he came up and told his father and mother, I saw one of the daughters of the Philistines at Timnah. Now get her for me as a wife, as my wife. But his father and mother said to him, Is there not a woman among the daughters of your relatives or among all our people that you must go and take a wife from the uncircumcised Philistines? But Samson said to his father, Get her for me, for she is right in my eyes. His father and mother did not know that it was from the Lord, for he was seeking an opportunity against the Philistines. At that time, the Philistines ruled over Israel. So here you got Samson. And by the way, that's a pretty good introduction to Samson. Samson just kind of, you can almost hear him grunting. You know, he sees a woman. He says, get her for me. You know, that's the one I want. Okay. And, and his parents are, are saying, whoa, whoa, whoa. Can't you find a good Jewish girl? And he says, no, I want that one. You know, because Samson is all impulse, all lust. And he's that way really his whole life. Uh, so he is not really interested in, you know, the idea of maybe I need to, to marry within the tribe, marry a, a Jewish girl like God would expect, you know, and, and be concerned about serving God. Instead, I, I don't mind. Philistine, sure, whatever. She looks good to me. All right, so that's Samson. But then you got verse 4, and I think verse 4 helps because verse 4 says, his mother and father did not know that it was from the Lord. He was seeking an opportunity against the Philistines. Jehovah is trying to move against the Philistines, and he is going to use Samson to do it. In fact, he's going to use Samson's lust to do it. He's going to use Samson's impulsiveness and his anger to do it. And so I think we have to look at both of those. On the one hand, you got Samson on a personal moral scale, doesn't look great. And on the other hand, you've got God using Samson's personal, moral problems to advance his cause and his purpose. So that doesn't mean that God endorses Samson's actions. It certainly doesn't mean God caused Samson to act that way. What it means is God is going to use Samson. 
And by the way, I think you see that pattern throughout Judges. You see it with other characters. I'm thinking of Gideon. I'm thinking of Jephthah. Uh, These are people that they've got their own flaws and foibles, and yet God uses them uh, in the same way that he uses Samson. So you just go through the stories of Samson. You kind of see that. So after Samson, you know, you got the whole riddle at his wedding, and then he gets angry because they finally found out his riddle by using his fiancée. And so he goes and kills 30 men, okay? So you got that. Well, is killing 30 men because you're mad? Is that right? Well, no, but it is a way God's moving against the Philistines. So you've got that that tension there. Or he goes to a Philistine's territory to, to seek a prostitute. They try to trap him, and so he gets mad, and he goes and he tears the gates off the city and runs uh, several miles and, and puts the gates somewhere else, which leaves the city vulnerable. But Samson just did it because he was mad because, you know, he was trying to be with this prostitute. So, 20 years of that, judging Israel in that way. And then you've got Delilah seducing Samson. Okay, Delilah is a Philistine woman, because he seems to have a soft spot for Philistine women. And uh, there's a lot of, it's kind of a sordid story, uh, but she eventually, you know, finagles and entices and seduces and gets uh, him to reveal his secret that his great strength is found Uh, well, at least it will leave him if his hair is cut. Look in chapter 16 with me. I want you to notice this, 16 and verse 20. It says, And she said, The Philistines are upon you, Samson. And he awoke from his deep sleep, I mean, he awoke from his sleep and said, I will go out as at other times and shake myself free. But he did not know that the Lord had left him. Samson didn't know Jehovah wasn't with him anymore. Jehovah had been with him the whole time through all these things, and yet now he doesn't know it. Now, it's not clear why Jehovah left him at this time. It's not clear because if it's because he'd been in this relationship with Delilah. It's not clear if it's because he had revealed his secret. It's not clear if it's because his hair had been cut. Or maybe God's just frustrated and fed up and said, okay, this is enough, I'm done with you. Or maybe Jehovah leaves him because he has one final act of destruction prepared. I mean, any of those could work as a, as a reason why Jehovah leaves him at this time. So that's where we get to our text, where the Philistines have captured him, and they've put out his eyes. And you see, they are making Samson, you know, kind of making sport of Samson, you know, having him come entertain them by them laughing. And this used to be the great warrior of Israel. Now, particularly, I want you to notice the text highlights this, that they are praising Dagon, their God, as having defeated Jehovah God, because Their people have defeated Jehovah's people. So Samson is the proof of that defeat. So what Samson does as he's sitting in this uh, room, this this building, with all of these 3,000 Philistines, all the lords, he says, you know what? Maybe we could could do a final blow here. Uh, So verse 28, Judges 16, verse 28, Then Samson called out to the Lord and said, O Lord God, please remember me and please strengthen me only this once, O God, that I may be avenged on the Philistines for my two eyes. So Samson remembers that it's Jehovah that strengthens him, right? Strengthen me also this once. But Samson's also wanting revenge. He's not saying, Jehovah, help me to finally strike a blow for you. No, this is me, strike a blow for me, okay? Because they took out my eyes. So again, you've got that problem uh, where... God has been using Samson's emotions from the very beginning, his lust, uh, his anger, 
and he's been using those to move against the Philistines, and now he's going to use his, his idea of vengeance. But, you know, even with all that said, these are God's enemies. They have shamed God's warrior, and now they're sort of blaspheming God and praising their God. Now, you look at the story, and the question is, did Samson commit suicide? I think you have to say clearly that Samson knows he's going to die. And because he says this in verse 30, uh, let me die with the Philistines. Okay, so he grabs the pillars and pushes them down. Not really clear what the, you know, logistics of the architecture are here. You know, how you've got pillars that are close enough together that have the whole structure. But, but you get the idea. Uh, he is able to be strengthened by God and push the pillars and the whole building collapses and kills all of them. Now, notice the commentary in verse 30. In verse 30, it says, Then he bowed with all his strength, and the house fell upon the lords and upon all the people who were in it. So the dead whom he killed at his death were more than those whom he had killed during his life. So the, the commentary views this act in terms of the dead he killed. Okay, So it's almost like, you know, back then he killed 30 people at the wedding. You know, he took the, the foxes and put torches between them and burned all the fields. You know, he killed so many people here and so many people here and so many people here. And then at the end, he killed even more. Okay, that's the way that the writer wants us to view it. It is not viewed in terms of morality. Did he do wrong or did he do right? It's ter- viewed in terms of here is how God moved against the Philistines. So whatever you may say about that, I think you have to say that God empowered him to do it. Now, in answering this question, that kind of becomes important, but it seems to me that's kind of in the eye of the beholder. So God empowers Samson to push the pillars over. He prays for it, and God allows it. Uh, so some might say, well, look, that means God endorses the action. But i got a problem with that, because that's the same logic that says, well, God empowered him to do everything else he's done his whole life, that many of those things we would say, eh, I'm not happy with that. You know, here, here Samson is at the prostitute, and then he goes and tears the gates off the city. Did God empower, empower him to do that? Yeah, he did. But is that an endorsement of going to see a prostitute? Okay, so you see, we got some, to me, the, the fact that God empowered him to do it is not a statement one way or another just because of the way Samson's life works. So I don't think we get much of a clue from that. I do think if we're going to call this suicide we have to admit it's different from other suicides in the Bible, like a straightforward suicide. Here's Saul falling on his sword. Here's Judas hanging himself, or Ahithophel who hangs himself, you know, where they know what they're doing. Uh, it's not about a situation where there might be some good that comes of it. They're just, they're just kind of taking that way out. So for my part, since you asked me the question, I would hesitate to class Samson's death as a suicide. I would view it as something more akin to a death in battle, you know, where he has a goal to, to try to kill these people who are the enemies of God. And so it's going to cause his death too, but he says, you know, this is worth it because I'm going to strike a blow. Now he's thinking revenge, but God's thinking, um, you know, moving against the Philistines. So that's my answer to that question, but I'm not quite done with this one yet. I, I want to say something about suicide uh, just while we're here. Uh, there is a long-held view among Christians many centuries old, although it does not originate in the New Testament era, uh, there is a long-held view among Christians that suicide is sort of an unforgivable sin. And the idea, the logic of it is we've killed, but there's no opportunity for repentance. You know, we're dead, so we can't change. Uh, I think it's important to point out that that view is all inference. Okay, it's inference from this and from this. 
where it's not something you can look at and say, oh, here's where the Bible condemns this. So the Bible does obviously prohibit murder, but on the idea of suicide, it's silent in terms of morality. Now, the Bible does record a number of suicides. I referred to a couple of them a minute ago. Um, let's see, Judas and Saul and Ahithophel. And when the Bible pictures those, it is a shameful thing. It is as if they are unwilling to face something. Uh, and so here's Saul. Saul kills himself because he's worried about what his enemies are going to do to his body. Okay? So he wants out. Judas seems to be so overwhelmed with sorrow and regret and then sort of this feeling of hopelessness and despair that he just ends it all. Ahithophel, Ahithophel is the counselor that abandons David and goes with uh, Absalom, and then his advice is ignored, so he goes and hangs himself. He's so embarrassed that he kills himself. So there are some you know, statements about suicide in that, but it is not something where it's, you know, this is a sin that is unforgivable. In fact, I think we have some trouble in general in this area because we really want to judge how God views these people. How does God view Samson? How does God view Solomon? We're always curious about that one. How does God view all these? And, and, and we just don't know. We're just kind of picking at little pieces where we don't even see the full picture and we don't always know what God thinks. And it seems to me that when we talk about suicide, we're not very gracious or very generous because I think we tend to forget that some of the great heroes of the Bible had these kinds of thoughts. Do you know Moses, Elijah, Job, Jonah, all prayed to die. They asked God to kill them. Now, God said no. But my point is they reached a point where they felt so overwhelmed that that was an option for them. And I want to say that people who do battle suicidal thoughts are people who are in extreme distress, who do need some generosity and some grace from us. Uh, I was reading because this, this uh, story came out. I, I forget where initially I heard about it. Uh, there's a man named Jared Wilson who was a pastor at a California megachurch, you know, a denominational group, and he had founded a mental health advocacy group. He would sometimes talk about his own battles with suicidal thoughts and tendencies, especially he was stressing, and through that group, stressing that being a follower of Jesus doesn't make those thoughts and tendencies go away. Well, he committed suicide last month at the age of 30, and he left behind a wife and children of two and four years old. And about a year ago, there was a very similar story, also in California, also with a, a pastor of a megachurch, who also talked about mental illness quite frequently. In fact, he preached a sermon about mental illness and killed himself a few days later. Suicide is the second leading cause of death in America for people aged 10 to 34. Second. So, that kind of thought leads me to say two things. First, if that ever becomes you, struggling with being overwhelmed by some circumstance in life or where you are and feeling like that's an option, please reach out to people. Please reach out to us. Don't suffer that alone. You need to know that you're in a situation of extreme distress where you're considering something that is a permanent, has a permanent consequence. Now, I don't believe that's God's will for you, 
And I do want to say that things can get better. And we are a people who want to try to help you get what you need, including help of a medical sort if that's necessary, but mainly to be able to be connected with people who love you and connected with a God who loves you. If people come to us with suicidal thoughts or statements about that, we need to know that's a serious situation. Uh, in, a, in the same way that we would, if somebody came and said, you know, I'm, I'm having these heart attack symptoms. You know, we would say, well, you need to get help. You need to get to a doctor. We wouldn't, we wouldn't say, oh, well, I hope that works out. You know, we would be very adamant. And this is the same kind of situation in a mental way. The second thing I want to say about that is, if we are dealing with the fallout of a suicide that has happened, particularly talking with and engaging with a family that suffered through someone they love committing suicide, we need to have some compassion on the people who have been left behind. And what I mean specifically is, I do not believe this is a time when it is helpful to judge people. Okay? I don't believe that we can know how God will judge people in these situations, and I don't believe it's helpful to tell people that we think that their loved one who committed suicide is not right before God because of that. I don't believe that's either compassionate or helpful, nor would I say, is it accurate? I will just say, my personal opinion, and this is just my opinion, so throw it in the trash if you don't like it, it's fine. But I actually believe there is some room to say that people in a state where they're considering an action like this are not really in full control of their faculties and not really in a state to make decisions of a moral nature. That's my opinion. There's at least room to say, well, God's going to judge them in a way that will be fair to them in things that I don't know anything about. But you know what? It's also not my job to judge them, even if those are my thoughts. I think this is an important thing to be able to say, we need to reach out and have compassion on people in these situations. But most of all, we want to try to avoid those tragedies when they do happen, we want to minister to the people who have suffered through them. We want to be compassionate. All right. Well, you didn't ask for all that, but was Samson committing suicide? I, I would say no. All right. The second question uh, is, why was it okay for Naaman to bow in the temple of Rimmon? So we're going to be in 2 Kings 5 here. I am sure that I have a few who are saying, wow, that's an interesting question, and then quite a few who are saying, what is that about? 2 Kings 5. So Naaman is a Syrian. He is the commander of the army of Syria. And he comes to Israel. Israel, the northern tribes, because the kingdom is split at this time. And he has come to Israel because Elisha is there. The problem with Syria, I mean the problem with Syria, the problem with Naaman is that he is a leper and he can't be cleansed. And so he hears about Elisha. He wants to come down. He comes to visit Elisha. And Elisha says, you need to go wash seven times in the Jordan. And Naaman says, that's ridiculous. Uh, did I come all the way down here to be told to wash in this dirty river? You know, I could have done that. I just thought he'd come and wave his hand over the place and heal me. And now i got to go do this. And finally, his servants convince him, go wash in the Jordan. He does it. He comes back cleansed. But not only that, I want you to see from the text we're about to read, Naaman comes back a changed man. Where he was obstinate and difficult and angry, now he is eager to serve Jehovah God. All right, so 2 Kings 5, we're going to read beginning in verse 15. 2 Kings 5, 15. It says, Then he returned to the man of God, that's Elisha, he and all his company, and he came and stood before him. And he said, Behold, I know that there is no God in all the earth but in Israel, so accept now a present from your servant. 
But he said, as the Lord lives before whom I stand, I will receive none. And he urged him to take it, but he refused. Then Naaman said, if not, please let there be given to your servant two mule loads of earth. For from now on, your servant will not offer burnt offering or sacrifice to any God but the Lord. In this matter, may the Lord pardon your servant. When my master goes into the house of Rimon to worship there, leaning on my arm, and I bow myself in the house of Rimon, when I bow myself in the house of Rimon, the Lord pardon your servant in this matter. He said to him, go in peace. By the way, the story gets even more interesting for after that because Gehazi tracks him down and, and basically steals his money. But that's a story for another day. Maybe you can ask another Q&A question about that one. All right, so... Naaman is a different guy, and you can see that from a couple of things he says. Uh, in verse 15, he says, I know that there is no God in all the earth but in Israel. Okay, that is a big statement from an ancient pagan. Remember, these people believed that every parcel of land had its own God. Every people had their own God. And so for him to say not only, hey, there's a God here too. Sometimes the, the people in the Old Testament will say that. Hey, you guys have a God. That's great. Good job. He's pretty good God. But to say there's no God except your God, that's a totally different level of faith. Because not only is he saying, I believe in your God, he's saying, I believe in only your God, and I'm repudiating the gods I've been serving, the Syrian gods, like Rimon. So then, when Elisha won't take a present, look at verse 17. He says, if not, please let there be given to your servant two mule loads of earth, for from now on your servant will not offer burnt offering or sacrifice to any god but the Lord. So he asked for two loads of dirt, which sounds really weird. Um, but I think what's happening is I think he wants to build an altar when he gets back to his home, and he is going to try to worship Jehovah God from his home. He's going to go back to Syria. He's not staying. And he's got a job to do there. He's going to have to, you know, do his job. But he says, if I can take this, I want dirt from Jehovah's land to be a part of my worship as I worship God where I'm going. Now, ancient peoples often believed that a God was located in a certain place. This was like, kind of like the home court, okay? So when you go into that land, well, you got to, who, whose home am I in? Oh, I'm in Jehovah's land. So taking that land may reflect some, you know, imperfect understanding of that from Naaman. You know, this is special dirt. It's holy land or something like that. But the point is he wants to honor Jehovah. That's his whole point. There is something else here. And I, I want you to, let's not pass this by. Naaman is planning to change his life. Sometimes you read in the Old Testament about people who will realize there's a, new, there's a different God, that Jehovah is a true God, and they say something really powerful like, oh, Jehovah is a great God. I, I command, the kings will do this. Darius does this. Nebuchadnezzar does this. I command all my people to, to worship and honor Jehovah God. But there's not really any plan to change, is there? They're not getting rid of all their old gods. They're not making moral changes to be more what Jehovah wants. It's just sort of an acknowledgement. Hey, add him to the pantheon. You know, there's another God, but not for Naaman. Naaman is thinking about, you know, when I go home, I want to be able to worship Jehovah. And when I go home, I'm going to have a little crisis about my job and how my job is going to require me to do something that might not reflect this new commitment. I am impressed with Naaman because Naaman is thinking ahead in ways that in the Old Testament, a lot of people are not doing. All right. So uh, verse 18 in this matter, may the Lord pardon your servant when your master goes into the house, when my master goes into the house of Rimon to worship there, leaning on my arm, and I bow myself in the house of Rimon. When I bow myself in the house of Rimon, the Lord pardon your servant in this matter. He said to him, Go in peace. It's kind of a weird repetition in the verse, but you get the idea. The idea is 
he is the commander of the army. So when he's going to go in, there's certain duties because he's in this high position. He's going to have to go in with the king. He's, the king goes in, and this is sort of like an allegiance thing. We are worshiping our God together. And he says, you know, there's really no way out of that for me. So will you ask Jehovah to excuse me, pardon me in this matter? And so Elisha says, yes, Jehovah will forgive. You go in peace. In other words, uh, don't worry about it. That's fine. So the question is, why, why was that okay? Why didn't he have to give that up? Okay, so the other part is, can we really preemptively ask forgiveness for anything? Hey, I'm going to do something bad. Uh, is God okay with that? And God says, sure. Yeah, that seemed a little odd, right? So that's the, the source of the question. Now, my response to that is that this case seems exceptional for several reasons. It is an exception rather than a rule. First of all, Naaman seems to know nothing about Jehovah in terms of morality. Okay, there is no clue that he's been taught anything about Jehovah. And in fact, I would wonder how much could Naaman have learned from the northern tribes about what it is to serve Jehovah God. The northern tribes, they're awful people. They're the ones who are going to be carried away first because their immorality and their idolatry became so, um, so much that God just said, I'm done with it. So Naaman doesn't know, seem to know anything in terms of morality. I would say the same thing, by the way, about someone like Rahab, okay, where it's not really about morality as much as it is about trusting a new God and putting your faith in him without a full understanding. Uh, second, it's not clear for Naaman what it will mean to be a servant of Jehovah alone in Syria. I mean, what is that going to look like? I don't know that we have any, even any examples of that. You know, to be the only believer in a a foreign God, when you're living in Syria. So it's easy for us to look at that and apply kind of a Christian paradigm and say, oh, he needs to count the cost. He needs to love God more than he loves father or mother. You know, he needs to abandon these kinds of things. He needs to go all in. But this is just a fledgling faith from an honest heart. So perhaps most importantly, this text doesn't have any moral instruction in it at all. There's nothing in here about you need to do this or do this. This is what God wants. None of that. This is all coming from Naaman. So the question then becomes, well, what do we do with an exceptional case? This is something that's an exception, it seems to me. And sometimes you have that. You know, there is a time where Hezekiah uh, restores the Passover. And yet they have to keep it at the wrong time, the wrong month. Some of the people aren't cleansed. And Hezekiah just prays to God, hey, will you please pardon everyone? Who does, you know, everyone who has a willing heart and is trying to do the right thing. We're not getting all the details right, but can you just accept this? Now, that's an exception, isn't it? You can't just say that from then on, they just kept the Passover whenever they wanted. That was an exception based on a circumstance where they were having a really difficult time restoring the Passover. Another exception is the thief on the cross. Okay, the thief on the cross lives his life as a thief, is being killed because of his lifestyle. And he says to Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. And Jesus says, this day you'll be, you'll be with me in paradise. Now, is that, a, is that a typical disciple, the thief on the cross? No, that's an exceptional disciple. Okay, usually disciples, they hear Jesus, they believe in him, they start following him, they try to be like him, they put their faith in him. That's the pattern. And you see that not only in Jesus' life, but you see that in the book of Acts. That's what it is to be a disciple. Being a disciple is not, well, I hope I get to hang next to Jesus on the cross, and then if Jesus says the right things to me, then I'm good. Okay? It's an exception. So the thing we do with exceptions is we, we see what they're trying to teach us. 
They're not trying to teach us new rules. Naaman is not teaching us that God doesn't care about these kinds of things. The thief on the cross is not teaching us, hey, it's cool, do whatever you want, as long as at the very end of your life you find a way to get some, something good from Jesus. These are exceptions that say, look at the faith that these people demonstrate, and then look at the compassion of a God who accepts that faith wherever they are. That, I think, is the point. Rather than trying to muse from that about, well, what, is the, what are the moral implications for us, I think we have to see them as exceptions. So I do believe there are times when a New Testament Christian might have to leave a job or leave a situation or leave a relationship where they are doing wrong. And I don't think Naaman's story or the idea in 1 Corinthians 7 of remain in the calling in which you were called, I don't believe any of those principles would say it's okay to just stay in sin. But I don't think the goal here is to teach us that those things don't matter. I think that the goal here is to say that God's power touches good and honest hearts like Naaman's who changes his life because he comes to believe in God. All right, well, thank you so much for your attention. We're done this morning. We'll be dismissed for our classes.